This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress and was founded and created through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements and who was deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. Welcome, everyone, into this very special edition of Lab Rat Chat that we're doing for the 2021 SABMA Symposium, hosted by Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine. This symposium is specifically for members of SABMA, but this episode will eventually be released to our entire audience. As all of our episodes are following the symposium, once that's all wrapped up, we'll, we'll publish this for everyone to listen to, as we always do. So that being said, our target, target audience for Lab Rat Chat is the general public, and I can guarantee you the general public does not know what SAVMA is. So that's the Student American Veterinary Medical Association. And as our listeners know, but since we have many new listeners today, specifically for this episode, I'm Jeff Marshall. I'm a third year vet student at Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. Seems like a mouthful, but I think Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine is longer. So, um, and I've been involved in the field of biomedical research since I graduated in college back in 2009. And I've worked with a variety of species from rabbits to monkeys to guinea pigs um, to mice and with a variety of different infectious diseases ranging from anthrax to plague to Ebola virus. And working in this incredible and super rewarding field is what has driven me to go back to school to become a veterinarian and to eventually hopefully become a lab animal vet. Um, Danielle, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit too for our guests? Sure. So, hi everyone. I am Danielle Dady. I am the I'm currently the senior research compliance coordinator at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, my career path was a little different than Jeff's. I started out kind of doing animal care work, worked up through vet tech stuff, facility manager, and now I'm on the IACUC administrator side. So that's a little bit about me. Awesome. All right. Well, the last thing I want to mention before we get to our guest today is just to remind everyone, especially if this is your first episode of Live Rat Chat, which I'm sure for most people it is, just go back and listen to our first episodes where we kind of break down the rules, regulations, and laws that govern the field of biomedical research when you're with the use of animals in research. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time going back and covering that material just because nobody wants to listen to laws and regulation. Um, so if you want that information, go back, listen to previous episodes. Um, this will be our 21st episode. So there's lots of material to catch up on if you want to. Um, so, it, but it's imperative for everyone to understand that this field is tightly regulated and everyone in this field is compassionate about their work and caring and loving of these animals. All right. So today we have a guest who comes very highly recommended and who is highly regarded amongst the veterinary students over there at KSU. Dr. Brian Heron. He is an assistant professor within the College of Veterinary Medicine, and he's a veterinary pathologist, or path, I knew I was going to say pathologist, so parasitologist. I'm in a pathology class, and it's eating away at my time, and it's all I think about right now. Um, so veterinary parasitologist, and so he's a double doctor, DVM, and a PhD, and I'm pretty sure we're the same age based upon the uh, the time that you graduated with your bachelor's degree, so I'm feel, feeling very unaccomplished today. So anyways, <laughs> welcome, Dr. Heron. And please, thank you, work. thank you. Well, when you listed the work that you've done in the different uh, 
diseases you'd worked with, I felt underaccomplished. I thought, whoa, that's a lot of cool experiences. So we all have our own roots, right? Right. Yeah. Just different paths. So anyways, um, so what made you interested in veterinary medicine and research? And if you would just kind of, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to get to where you are today. Yeah. I I grew up like many veterinary students wanting to work with animals and uh, thinking that a mixed animal practice was what I wanted to do. Um, I had a really great experiences growing up. And uh, the veterinarian that I worked for need that letter of recommendation to get into vet school from a veterinarian. And um, the, the year or so before vet, I, I went to apply to vet school, he passed away, unfortunately. And so then we went through all the he's the only vet I've ever worked for. How do I get a letter of recommendation? You know, who do I get it from? And one of the things I did was I jumped into our diagnostic lab at Oklahoma State. And I worked in bacteriology and um, I worked on the necropsy floor and got really interested in pathology. And I thought I was going to become a pathologist. Um, so, you know, we're too far off with the veterinary yeah, pathologist. Yeah, yeah, I was almost right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my goal. Um, and I was looking at some of the projects that were being done by pathology residents. And a lot of it was cancer, biomarkers and things. And I was really in, interested in infectious diseases. I had done some infectious disease research as an undergrad. And so I thought, what if I scout out a PhD and do it separately from the residency program instead of a combined program, and then do a PhD and then, and then jump back to maybe a residency later. And I got into a lab with Dr. Susan Little at Oklahoma State studying ticks and tick-borne diseases and really got to do a, a wide variety of really cool um, transmission and epidemiology studies on Lyme disease. And she really just kept pushing, pushing, pushing for me to stay in the field of parasitology. And uh, kind of towards the end of my PhD, I thought, you know, actually, I don't really like cancer at all. I don't want to look at any cancer slide. I don't want to do any of that. Like, I only want to do infectious stuff. So maybe I don't want to be a pathologist or at minimum, maybe like a wildlife pathologist where they see much more infectious, toxic, or or accident, like um, brunt force issues. Um, and so I really stuck with the parasitology at that point and, and took my board certification and uh, then was you know, fortunate enough to be hired here at Kansas State um, to an appointment that is about 50% research, 30% diagnostics for the Kansas State Diagnostic uh, Laboratory, and then 20% teaching. So kind of a, a wide variety here in my faculty position. Um, we know you do a lot of work with ticks and fleas um, and their related diseases, and we've definitely driven home the point that you know animal research not only benefits just humans but also our pets. So, could you talk a little bit about your research with ticks and fleas and how we all benefit from this? Yeah, a, a few points here, and it, it won't be my research. We'll jump to the earlier period in fleas and ticks, in that. Before we had highly effective and persistent flea and tick products, we really couldn't have our pets inside. And so the flea and tick parasite control program in general, obviously parasitologists would make the argument that it really was the factor that 
move that animal, human-animal bond to the next level where they're family members now because they're in our house, they're sleeping in our bed, and you really can't have a pet sleeping in your bed when they have fleas, right? It's just not going to happen. And so for flea and tick products, what it did it at baseline was, you know, really strengthen that human-animal bond. As far as our uh, my work through my PhD and now is a lot of our interest in studying ticks and tick-borne diseases from an epidemiology standpoint is looking at where dogs are exposed to these diseases and then seeing if that is a mirror of risk for humans. And so we now know that if you look at where dogs test positive, say for antibodies to Borrelia, Lyme disease, that that risk is a high-risk area for humans to also test positive. And the ways in which the testing is done, so a lot of the dog antibody testing is done on a routine annual basis. So really the bias there is they have to take their dog to a veterinarian that runs that test. But it's the dog doesn't have to be sick or anything, so less biased. For human case reports, they have to go to the doctor be correctly diagnosed. And so there's a lot of factors biasing that data. And we now know that that using dog testing for Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, and Borrelia can really serve as a sentinel for those risk areas for humans and allow us to try to get ahead of the curve in knowing where those areas are expa- expanding so that we can inform those doctors in those areas so that they have it on their rule out to make a correct diagnosis. And, and so I think a lot of the disease testing, dogs help out a ton in just providing background information of, is the disease here and should we have it on our differential list? Yeah, that's a great point, especially here in Southwest Virginia. Lyme disease is a hot spot. I mean, yeah. It's hot. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Clater, Clater Lake, uh, uh, in Southwest Virginia is like one of my favorite, uh, positive control sites to go to and find ticks. There's plenty of there. Perfect. That's where we all are. We go there <laughs> all summer long. Oh, no. for, thank you for informing my, me. My, my hotspot is like 100 yards from a playground. And so, you know, there there is that intimate relationship where we know that most dogs are on a leash with their, their pets or, or, or with their owners. And so where your dog is walking is where you're walking. And that's really the risk is like where we are. So this just popped into my head. You know, we have these monthly or every three months, you give your dog a pill or you topical um, flea and tick treatment. Why don't we have that for people yet? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I think if they, if they offered it, you know, every veterinarian say instantly, yes. Uh, for the topical products, they're super effective for dogs because dogs don't sweat. Uh-huh. And we can, we can regulate the number of times we bathe them. And the topical products really fade okay. with sunlight exposure and water exposure. It's why we don't have really great products for horses either. Okay. And so for humans, we would just bathe too much for them to be as persistent. <laughs> but for the new systemic products, um, I think really the... The scare there is once you have a product in that lasts for 30 days, really any adverse event throughout that period can be or attempt to be linked to that sure. um, product. And we've seen that happen with the, the canine formulations of we give product X, you know, on day mm-hmm. zero and then uh, they get sick on, on day 20. Was it related to that treatment? I, sure. I don't know, but 
when it's reported, it has to be reported as an adverse event. And okay. I think there's a lot of risk in a product that lasts for 30 days and opening yourself up to any number of things. I always jokingly say there's going to be someone who takes the product and then a week later goes and celebrates their birthday and has a bunch of drinks and they wake up and vomit and they say, oh, it must have been that product. It couldn't have been the 20 drinks I had last night. I never, do, I never vomit, you know, after 20 drinks. It has to be this product. But, you know, all the weird and the wonderful bit of adverse event reporting because, you know, when, and this is for humans and uh, for animals, when an adverse event is reported to the company, they're required by law to directly report it um, to the governing bodies as an adverse event. And so there are some that is, I gave my dog product X and it got, it ran out and got pregnant. It's never ran away or it, it ran into the road and got hit by a car. Well, there's a hit by car adverse event now <laughs> Sure, that doesn't make any sense because they're legally required to report your okay. adverse events. The companies cannot pick and choose which ones they think are important or not important. Interesting. Well, those are good points. That definitely answers my question. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that was a much more well thought out question than I thought it was going to be. I, I didn't know people were actually considering, you know, tick and flea preventatives for humans, but apparently it's been. <laughs> I, I think I think some veterinarians realize how good the products are for dogs, and then that makes them like jealous of like, well, you know, I feel like my dog is safer on our hikes than I am, and I, right. why can't I have this? Yeah, but like you said, hopefully we're bathing somewhat frequently and can catch those ticks. Right. Yeah. Definitely makes. Sense. Although in COVID times, you know. You never know. Staying at home, I go a few days. Anyway. All right. So obviously, ticks and fleas are invertebrate species and are not regulated under the Animal Welfare Act or really any regulations that I'm aware of governing the field of animals and biomedical research. So however, in order to do research with ticks and fleas, I imagine you have to maintain a stock of ticks, fleas, what have you in your lab that you're able to keep alive and maintain. And so you have to use animals for that type of research. Right. And so that would be then regulated under the ICA. Is that how that works? Yep. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So um, there are flea colonies uh, and tick colonies throughout the U.S. They do provide the, you know, the raw materials, right? The fleas and ticks for our product testing that is required to get those label claims so that we know they're effic- uh, uh, safe and effective. Um, for that, it, it does require. Um, rearing stages on on host um and there's a variety of ways to do that for fleas and ticks um i think the the goal there is we're really just trying to uh, minimize the the number of animals that we use and for for our uh the flea colony really it's not an overwhelming burden um we just want to remove that stimulus before they start experiencing those flea allergy dermatitis clinical signs, right? There's just no reason to, to have that at all. And so then we have the opportunity to step in before there's a, an issue. Um, and we have, you know, like many protocols, we have a checklist of things of how does an animal get pulled off study? If we see any one of these, then there's no real reason to continue that specific animal on study and um, treat any conditions that they have. And for our flea colony uh, cats, right, they've, the colony is contained. There's, 
no infectious diseases or at least we'll call it specific pathogen free um, of the known human pathogens transmitted by fleas. And so we're able to take those cats and adopt them out. And we've been really successful actually uh, in just like a historical trivia for a long time in, in many states, including Kansas, it was illegal to adopt out animals because when purchased using grant money or university funds, they were university property. And so for you to adopt them out, you were technically stealing university property. And my predecessor here, Dr. Dryden, was really uh, important. He he did not want to, uh, you know, they would have a few fleas on a cat and they wouldn't have to be terminal for no, for no reason, really. And so he really pushed uh, Kansas to shift that over so that our animals were not seen as property and then they could be uh, adopted out uh, safely uh, post whatever a study. So we, we place all of our animals afterwards. And in fact, uh, because our, our cats get socialized and played with and whenever one of our lab mates is having a bad day, you just go to the cat room and hang out and play. Uh, we, we have like really fun adoption stories, uh, just maybe two months ago, got an email from someone who adopted one of our cats about 10 years ago. The cat had unfortunately just passed away of old age and she just wanted to email us and say what a great cat it was and and how much she loved that cat and was looking to see if we had any um, great cats up for adoption again. Uh, again, just a, a, a cool way to give that cat a thank, a thank you for the service they've done for the science uh, community by providing them with a really loving home for the rest of their life. And actually, I think adopting a cat from a lab, you might actually be kind of guaranteeing yourself a friendlier cat than if you went to a rescue. I mean, I love you know animal rescues; they do great work. But I've worked with a couple cat colonies, and you know they're guaranteed human interaction every day. They, um, you know, our cats had free range of the room to walk around and you know, they're not in little cages all day. Um, and it seems like lab cats kind of have to be bred to be friendly because if you're in the animal field and you've ever had to deal with a cat, you know, you're not going to want to purchase from um, someone who might have a cat that wants to hiss at you and scratch you. So a lot of these cats are just so friendly to start with and they just get better and better as time goes on. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I think one of the unfortunate parts of all the the smoke and mirrors that we kind of have to do in lab animal is that we can't really advertise that we have cats because you know publicly yeah. uh, letting the community know that we have cats in research right puts the our research program in in some kind of jeopardy and when we're trying to reach out and say hey does anyone want a, a really cool uh loving cat that had a few fleas on it for for a while um and uh it does make it a, a bit more difficult for us to place our cats and we wish that we it was things were more transparent and appreciate you all getting the word out right that there's you know that it's being done and we can do it in a humane and, and loving way still uh, that we could let people know so they could, you know, adopt our cats. Yeah. Well, I mean, if most people realize that they're, they're out indoor, outdoor cats are going out and probably getting fleas on them most of the time anyway. <laughs> so really getting a cat from a lab that had some fleas on it that were clean shouldn't, shouldn't scare them away. It's just like you said, just trying to be more transparent and, you know, explaining that to them. 
in a way. Yeah. At the end of the day. Um, that leads me into my next question, actually. Um, so I think it's safe to say everyone in this industry is big into, you know, caring for the animals and looking for alternatives. It seems like in your field of research, it would be a little difficult to find a direct alternative to feeding these fleas or ticks or other parasites. But um, do you have any experience with, you know, trying different alternatives, um, different ways of feeding these animals where maybe down the road we might not need animals? Yeah, there there definitely are. And I think um, there are a few groups attacking it. Our, Our group is... Uh, trying to find solutions as well. Because from our side of rearing uh, fleas, it's just an extra thing to have the animals, right? It, for If there was a way that I could put blood into a, a, a little jar and just put fleas in there, then I wouldn't have to you know, order the cats, pay for their per diem, you know, find homes for them. Uh, no, I don't really want to have that many animals either because it just adds lots of complexity to what should be a simple thing of take an egg to an adult. Um, and so we're looking for op- options. There are artificial feeding membranes that you can use for feeding fleas on. Um, for ticks, they've had reasonable success as well. The the issue with the artificial membranes is that you don't get, and not sure if it's just not as good a feeding mechanism, but the reproductive potential of the fleas drop off. And so if I was just trying to keep the colony going at a low level, then it wouldn't be a big problem. But when we do these flea studies um, to test a product, we probably have to put 100 fleas on certain animals throughout the study. And we need thousands of fleas at that time. And and really, it's super challenging to get a high reproductive potential on our artificial feeding membranes right now. Not exactly sure the mechanism of why that is. One of the other things that is super strange is we have a multi-drug resistant flea colony strain here at Kansas State. And anytime we try to move that to an artificial feeding membrane, it loses that trait of multi-drug resistance. And, it, you know, it must, our, our animals are not treated. So it's not like we're putting selectional pressure that way in which they still survive. It's something about just not even having to bother being on host that they shuck that resistance gene, it's probably of no benefit for them other than surviving the drug treatment. And so then when they're on an artificial membrane, they lose that multi-drug resistance. And um, that strain was really important in developing a lot of the uh, topical flea and tip products from the early 90s on and, and its ability to see if it could kill those multi-drug resistance strains. So while there's a lot of options that are coming out of blood feeding membranes, there's a lot of weird nuances. They found that fleas like to situate themselves, you know, down against the hairs. And so now our artificial membrane has to have some kind of like hair in there so it can kind of cozy up. It, it, it likes what it likes in a certain way. And we're trying to figure out all the different ways we may be able to tweak some of these uh, feeding membranes so that we can improve the efficacy. Because again, anyone who has a colony of fleas and ticks really doesn't want to be using animals in that mechanism. It, it really just adds a layer of complexity. Um, and so there's lots of people going after that perfect membrane that we can rear these ectoparasites um, off off of a host. 
Okay. Jeff, I want to skip ahead real quick since we're talking about the um, multi-drug resistant fleas real quick. We were kind of curious, is it becoming, how difficult is it to find like new products that are effective at controlling those fleas? And do we need to think about, you know, product rotation on our pets or things like that? Because that was something we wanted to ask you and you kind of gave me a nice segue there. So, Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of different issues. Um, and I'll address the ticks first. Most of our ticks that we're talking about in pets are three host ticks and that they live on three separate hosts in the environment. And usually that first host is a small rodent out in the woods. And then the second one is maybe that, or maybe it's finally onto our pet. But the amount of time and number, sheer number of ticks that are out on wildlife Deer, raccoons, possums, coyotes, mice, everything, turkeys, uh, lizards, snakes. The, we, we probably can't put enough selectional pressure uh, on that tick population by just treating our pets. Okay. The one that you can is Ripicephalus sanguineus, the brown dog tick. It's, a, it's an indoor tick, which is why lab animal gets weird when you bring it in because it just like will infest the whole lab animal facility. <laughs> um, but it's a true indoor tick, and you can put in a selectional pressure. And so we've seen drug-resistant um, Repicephalus populations, and and that's really the only one we have an issue with. the 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 class switch that was most recent was really just to get away from the topical uh, products into a systemically acting product. For fleas, um, you you probably can put enough selectional pressure by treating. Lots of pets, and we've seen a, a growth in product failures in these heavy flea environments. So K- Kansas State has gone down to the Tampa, Florida region um, every couple of years for the past, I don't know, 30 years to test out products on pets. So the, it's a home infestation. We get there, there's fleas in the home, there's fleas everywhere. And we treat the pets and remove the home infestation by treating the pets. And we've shown a few products over time have lost their same efficacy and really um, you know, can't say that our, our specific pet treatments are driving that selection, but it, it could be. Um, to answer the first question, which is how easy is it for us to get a new product? It's really super difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the new isoxazoline class uh, came out, and then every company kind of made their iteration of it. And those are the systemic products. That was kind of uh, a big jump forward in in how we control fleas and ticks, just from a mechanism. But overall, we should not really be relying on um, new product discovery to uh, be a savior in places where we think of drug resistance. In terms of our fleas and ticks, I think the overall immediate risk is pretty low. Um, but you know, if we jump to something like GI parasites in, in goats, you should never wait on new drugs to save that. We have to be thoughtful using our products now um, to maintain their efficacy long-term. Yeah, speaking of multi-drug resistant fleas, firsthand experience, getting Galveston, Texas, down there with my dog, the fleas would just swim around in the front line. I swear it would do nothing. I did front line and then K9 Advantix, both of them, nothing. We had like our whole house got infested with <laughs> fleas. Speaking of not wanting to sleep with your pets that had fleas, you wouldn't allow them in our bed. 
well, I'll double down on that. We, um, I sprayed all of our carpets at night to try to get the fleas under control. My wife was away at, at basic training for the military. So it was just me and the dog. And this was like 10 years ago. And so I didn't want him to sleep on the floor. So I threw him in bed with me, not thinking he was infested with fleas. Went to lab, went to work the next day in a lab where we worked with plague, which is probably, I don't know, if I should, and I had fleas in my hair. And so that was, that was a rough day. But uh, anyways, yeah, so it took, I eventually had to go with an oral like systemic medication to get, to get the control of the fleas. It was, you know, if you ever want to need a multi-drug resistant colony of fleas, just go to well, Galvin. Well, and a, cool, a few cool things about the, the studies we had done in Florida is going into these homes, there's fleas there and we're really just using the products as labeled um, like you would for a client. But what we've learned is if you go into a home that's infested with fleas and you treat the pet with a highly effective uh, flea product, um, you, you actually don't need to treat the rest of the home. You have to, But you do have to burn out the reserves of fleas and get all of the environmental stages developed up and, and out. And so um, a few conditions you need to meet it has to be a highly effective product. So we have to kill fleas before they can lay more eggs. We have to treat every pet in the house. Um, so can't have any untreated pets and we have to do it for at least three months. And with that, you can significantly reduce flea allergy dermatitis and, and eliminate home flea infestations without setting off bombs in the house. Uh, we can just treat the pets as according to, to the label dose on, on these approved products. And so uh, it's a really neat a bit chance to go into homes, remove those fleas, which, which are really a significant health risk for humans as well, uh, and kind of show that you can do it without just like setting off chemicals across the house. No one wants to do that really. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, I bombarded my house with chemicals and everything. And we, but, we run into homes that have tried everything, have, you know, and they've spent, they'll say, well, we spent like $1,000 on exterminators and this and that. And they say, you know, have you talked to your veterinarian and, and gotten a product for your pet? And they say, no, it's really expensive to go to the veterinarian. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, con, they have some kind of idea of whatever, I just need flea medicine, but I know that the vet appointment is going to be an appointment fee. And then they're going to try to, you know, have me do a fecal float and I can do a heartworm test and, you know, whatever it is, but in their mind, it's really expensive, which is unfortunate because they, you know, they, they've already spent a thousand dollars with no success when I can tell them three months of a really effective flea and tick product would have taken care of their problem. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely feel for those people though. I mean, it's a night, I mean, I still have nightmares about it every now and then, you know, if I feel a little like tickle on my ankle, I'm just looking down, make sure it's not a flea. And, and yeah, like you said, I think I vacuumed, you know, two to three times a day, every day for at least four weeks and then just went down to like once a day. And so, I mean, yeah, those are those kind of things people need to do to just help eliminate. And we had like, it was like a good vacuum with the HEPA filter and I'm sure that kind of, I went outside to empty it. Cause my first thought was I'm going to dump this in the trash can. And, then, and they, they'll hatch. Yeah. They'll hatch. Yeah. In the trash can. We've seen all that. All right. For fun. We like to have fun on the show. What's your favorite, um, what's your favorite medical or scientific discovery that's come from the use of animals and research and why? It can be anything. It I mean, can be your own research. We yeah. recently talked about, yeah, like, I mean, just simply the COVID-19 vaccine. And we're all yeah. thankful for that one right I, now. I, I think just in general, my favorite things about 
uh, human animal medicine is uh, one, like uh, introducing people to the fact that humans are animals. And so that, you know, when we say, oh, dogs get cancer, like, what? Huh? How, how do dogs get cancer? It's like, how do you get cancer? You know, it's the same, same ways. And the other part of that is because um, we, in, in those workup safety trials, we do test human drugs on animals first. It's fun to see a drug come out for animals first and then go to humans and say, oh, yeah, we've been using that for a long time. Thanks for catching up, human medicine. Because, you know, we've had to run safety trials. Maybe we've been able to recruit more. Uh, he was using cancer, but more cancer patients for, you know, a, a clinical study in dogs to then ramp it up to a, whatever, a phase three in humans. Uh, but it's fun when when the the comparative medicine group, right, our, our um, veterinary focused but kind of translational research uh, takes off in the animals first and then we kind of get to play the, yeah, play catch up humans. We've already got this drug for dogs. I mean, general, I love anything like that. No, that's that's a very good point. I actually never really thought of it in those terms, but yeah, vet medicine is uh, probably just beating human medicine in a lot of arenas. Um, we we this is another fun question that we've been asking all of our guests. So, if you're ever like out, I would say at a party, but those don't happen anymore. Um, it you know, how do you describe what you do for a living if you're around you know people who you don't know very well? Do you kind of shy away from the animal research component, or do you just dive right into it? And how you know how do you sort of address those questions? Well, I, I do mine in a tiered approach because uh, if you just say, "Hey, I'm Brian, and I work with ticks," then you really like no one wants to shake your hand. They maybe think you like a, like your pockets are full of ticks or something. Um, so, I, really, I always introduce myself as a veterinarian first because um, I'm very. Uh, proud of that. Uh, it's a profession that I'm proud to be in. And so uh, I, I really do, I start off with veterinarian and then that's kind of like, oh, so, you know, what do you see? Like cat, cats and dogs. I'm like, okay, well now we got to chat a little bit more. Uh, I talk, I deal with parasites. Those are things that infect live in and on our animals. And then that usually gives a little pushback. Um, and then specifically what I like to do is kill as many ticks and fleas as I can. And I don't know that there's a lot of people that just like decide to ask follow-up questions. One, if I'm a parasitologist and two, if I just tell them I kill ticks and fleas. So I don't know that uh, animal research comes up a ton just because I've got the ick factor of like gross parasites. And, you know, someone, uh, when I bring up ticks, you know, inevitably themselves, they're... Uh, wife, dad, uncle, someone's gotten Lyme disease. They want to talk to me about Lyme disease and my conversation gets shifted pretty quickly. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I understand. I think that's, that would definitely be my approach too. Even in school now, everyone asks me what I want to do when I get out. Small animal or large animal. A lot of times I just say small animal because mice and rats primarily. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And if they push it, then I'll say, you know, lab animal. And then they cock their head sideways thinking, why do you want to go, you know, in their, ter- in their words or in their head, you know, torture animals as a veterinarian. But then, and then it turns into this long conversation about, you know, we're, we're still veterinarians, the human, the, the animals and welfare and 
is of utmost concern. So, yeah. Um, and we had once, and I had one student even, um, she wasn't, I mean, one of my classmates, she listened to our podcast, thought my animal research was all about euthanizing animals and there's no medicine involved, no medicine, you know, medicine component to it. And after listening, now she's looking for live animal externships and wants to experience it even more. So that was, that was good. Good to hear for sure. Um, so, but anyways, I think we can kind of wrap most of this up. I know you've got other things to get to. Danielle, you've got to get back to back to work at some point today, right? Um, this and is then, my work office, but it's okay. <laughs> they know I'm talking to you guys. Right. Uh, so do, do you have any final statements or thoughts um, that we haven't previously covered that you think the public should know or that participants of SAVMA should know um, regarding your research, you know, alternatives in medicine, the use of animals and research in general, flea tick control, you know, what have you? Anything else? I think a few parts. One... You know, I, I feel really spoiled here. Our, our lab animal group, comparative medicine group, is incredible in in the care, um, the attention uh, to to care, husbandry, um, enrichment, everything, in providing an environment in which I would feel comfortable in, in working with animals. And I know that. For me, I don't know that I would be able to to work with animals in a way that was, you know, considered to be inhumane. Um, I have no interest in in hurting animals. the The baseline of it is that the regulatory agencies require that these pro the so for flea and tick specifically, these products be tested on the animals. To make sure they're safe um, and effective, so that they can be given an appropriate dose, and we know there's going to be a predictable response to that treatment. And there's really no way around that. And I, I know uh, that there are are um, it's, it's more than maybe cosmetics, but brands that say we don't test our products on animals well they're really riding the coattails of products that have been and and a lot of topical things really as long as you show an equivalency that your product is the same product then you don't have to go through as many of those things but uh, you get a free pass for yours because you're riding off of someone else's data and and it's similar to if you've ever been out fishing, there's the boats that chum and bring fish in, and there's the boats that claim they're eco, and they don't do that, but they really just fish behind the boats that do chum. And because there's no way around it, we we are required to provide our the public with a reasonable level of safety for the products that we're giving to ourselves and to our animals. And the way that we have to evaluate that is in a in a an animal system. To see how that whole system will react, and you know, a, a future where we can start planning uh, predictive modeling or computer computational models of how we think these drugs will interact can help reduce the number of animals that we need to be using. But um, really, until you get something in or on a human or a, you know an animal system, you have no idea. And, and that's really the reality we're at is the the research is mandated and really um, ex- expected. They, most people don't realize, but they do expect it that 
a product they take will be safe. So the expectation is, I'm going to put this in my body, it's going to be safe, and we can only tell them that if it's been tested. And so my goal as a researcher is to try to use the fewest number of animals in the safest way possible. Um, and then for those that is, is safe to do, right, provide them with a, a loving home um, after that as a thank you for their like um, immense and, um, I don't know, irrepayable commitment they've, that they've given to science, right? And, and thank them. Uh, my students, uh, sometimes laugh at me, but I often do like just thank our animals. I'll just like I'll be petting them and then be like, "Thank you so much," because they are doing society as a whole a, a huge um, benefit for their service. Yeah, I couldn't have said that any better myself. That was perfect way to wrap things up. And you're and- not the only researcher who says thank you to their animals. I have witnessed, and I so I do the post approval monitoring for uh, my university and. I don't think they're doing it just because I'm standing there watching them. Like these, these reactions are so genuine with the researchers. And I, I've caught like an older gentleman, like hugging a rat, and, like whispering to him. And I don't even think he knew I was watching him. And it was just so sweet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It, it, for, for many that are doing research, it, it is just something that we had the ability to, to verbally or through actions, thank those animals for yeah. their service for the rest of the society that, that gets the benefit of of the fruits of that scientific research. Yep. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, if there is nothing else, uh, I'll encourage everybody, again, to go back and listen to, you know, the previous episode of Live Rat Chat, where we kind of expand on lots of the things we talked about, including drug efficacy, testing and safety and FDA approval. Uh, we've spoken with live animal vets who, you know, talk about what their job is like, um, researchers, other veterinarians, scientists, you know, we, vet techs within the field, everybody. So go back and check it out for sure. Dr. Heron, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. I hope everyone out there enjoys this episode and gets something out of it. I know I learned a lot today. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and then everyone, if you, we'd also always ask everyone to go please, please rate and review LibRat Chat. You can find us on, you know, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, and you can email us libratchat at gmail.com if you have questions or you want a specific topic for us to talk about. You know, shoot us an email. We always respond to those. So definitely check us out. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Dr. Heron. And thanks, we'll everyone, later. See ya. <laughs>